0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Chapter twenty-two. I Return to My Muttons. After twenty-one years' absence, I felt a very strong desire to see the river again, and the steamboats, and such of the boys as might be left. So I resolved to go out there. I enlisted a poet for company, and a stenographer to take him down, and started westward about the middle of April. As I proposed to make notes, with a view to printing, I took some thought as to methods of procedure. I reflected that if I were recognized on the river, I should not be as free to go and come, talk, inquire, and spy around, as I should be if unknown. I remembered that it was the custom of steamboat men in the old times to load up the confiding stranger with the most picturesque and admirable lies, and put the sophisticated friend off with dull and ineffectual facts. So I concluded that, from a business point of view, it would be an advantage to disguise our party with fictitious names. The idea was certainly good, but it bred infinite bother for although Smith, Jones, and Johnson are easy names to remember when there is no occasion to remember them, it is next to impossible to recollect them when they are wanted. How do criminals manage to keep a brand new alias in mind? This is a great mystery. I was innocent, and yet was seldom able to lay my hand on my new name when it was needed, and it seemed to me that if I had had a crime on my conscience to further confuse me, I could never have kept the name by me at all. We left per Pennsylvania Railroad at 8 a.m. April 18. Evening. Speaking of dress, grace and picturesqueness drop gradually out of it as one travels away from New York. I find that among my notes. It makes no difference which direction you take. The fact remains the same whether you move north, south, east, or west, no matter you can get up in the morning and guess how far you have come by noting what degree of grace and picturesqueness is by that time lacking in the costumes of the new passengers. I do not mean of the women alone, but of both sexes. It may be that carriage is at the bottom of this thing, and I think it is, for there are plenty of ladies and gentlemen in the provincial cities whose garments are all made by the best tailors and dressmakers of New York yet this has no perceptible effect upon the grand fact. The educated eye never mistakes those people for New Yorkers. No, there is a godless grace and snap and style about a born and bred New Yorker, which mere clothing cannot affect. April 19. This morning struck into the region of full goatees, sometimes accompanied by a mustache, but only occasionally. It was odd to come upon this thick crop of an obsolete and uncomely fashion. It was like running suddenly across a forgotten acquaintance whom you had supposed dead for a generation. The goatee extends over a wide extent of country, and is accompanied by an iron-clad belief in Adam and the biblical history of creation, which has not suffered from the assaults of the scientists. AFTERNOON At the railway stations, The loafers carry both hands in their breeches' pockets. It was observable heretofore that one hand was sometimes out of doors. Here never. This is an important fact in geography. If the loafers determined the character of a country, it would be still more important, of course. Heretofore, all along, the station loafer has been often observed to scratch one shin with the other foot. Here these remains of activity are wanting. This was an ominous look. By and by we entered the tobacco-chewing region. Fifty years ago the tobacco-chewing region covered the Union. It is greatly restricted now. Next, boots began to appear. Not in strong force, however. Later, away down the Mississippi, they became the rule. They disappeared from other sections of the Union with the mud. No doubt they will disappear from the river villages also, when proper pavements come in. We reached St. Louis at ten o'clock at night. At the counter of the hotel I tendered a hurriedly invented, fictitious name, with a miserable attempt at careless ease. The clerk paused, and inspected me in the compassionate way in which one inspects a respectable person who is found in doubtful circumstances, and then he said, "'It's all right. I know what sort of a room you want. Used to clerk at the St. James in New York.' an unpromising beginning for a fraudulent career. We started to the supper-room, and met two other men whom I had known elsewhere. How odd and unfair it is! Wicked impostors go around lecturing under my nom de guerre, and nobody suspects them, but when an honest man attempts an imposture, he is exposed at once. One thing seemed plain. We must start down the river the next day, if people who could not be deceived were going to crop up at this rate, an unpalatable disappointment, for we had hoped to have a week in St. Louis. The Southern was a good hotel, and we could have had a comfortable time there. It is large and well-conducted, and its decorations do not make one cry, as do those of the vast Palmer House in Chicago. True, the billiard-tables were of the old Silurian period, and the cues and balls of the post-Pliocene but there was refreshment in this not discomfort for there is rest and healing in the contemplation of antiquities the most notable absence observable in the billiard-room was the absence of the riverman. if he was there he had taken in his sign he was in disguise I saw there none of the swell airs and graces, and ostentatious displays of money, and pompous squanderings of it, which used to distinguish the steamboat crowd from the dryland crowd in the bygone days, in the thronged billiard-rooms of St. Louis. In those times the principal saloons were always populous with rivermen. given fifty players present, thirty or thirty-five were likely to be from the river. But I suspected that the ranks were thin now, and the steamboat-men no longer an aristocracy. Why, in my time they used to call the barkeep Bill, or Joe, or Tom, and slap him on the shoulder. I watched for that, but none of these people did it. Manifestly a glory that once was had dissolved and vanished away in these twenty-one years. When I went up to my room I found there the young man called Rogers, crying. Rogers was not his name, neither was Jones, Brown, Dexter, Ferguson, Bascom, nor Thompson, but he answered to either of these, that a body found handy in an emergency, or to any other name, in fact, if he perceived that you meant him. He said, "'What is a person to do here when he wants a drink of water? Drink this slush?' "'Can't you drink it?' "'I could if I had some other water to wash it with.' Here was a thing which had not changed. A score of years had not affected this water's mulatto complexion in the least. A score of centuries would succeed no better, perhaps. It comes out of the turbulent, bank-caving Missouri. And every tumblerful of it holds nearly an acre of land in solution. I got this fact from the bishop of the diocese. If you will let your glass stand half an hour, you can separate the land from the water as easy as Genesis and then you will find them both good, the one good to eat, the other good to drink. The land is very nourishing, the water is thoroughly wholesome. The one appeases hunger, the other thirst. But the natives do not take them separately, but together, as nature mixed them. When they find an inch of mud in the bottom of a glass, they stir it up, and then take the draught, as they would gruel. It is difficult for a stranger to get used to this batter, but once used to it, he will prefer it to water. This is really the case. It is good for steamboating, and good to drink, but it is worthless for all other purposes, except baptizing. Next morning we drove around town in the rain. The city seemed but little changed—it was greatly changed, but it did not seem so—because in St. Louis, as in London and Pittsburgh, You can't persuade a new thing to look new. The coal-smoke turns it into an antiquity the moment you take your hand off it. The place had just about doubled its size, since I was a resident of it, and was now become a city of four hundred thousand inhabitants. Still, in the solid business parts, it looked about as it had looked formerly. Yet I am sure there is not as much smoke in St. Louis now as there used to be. The smoke used to bank itself in a dense billowy black canopy over the town, and hide the sky from view. This shelter is very much thinner now. Still there is a sufficiency of smoke there, I think. I heard no complaint. However, on the outskirts changes were apparent enough. Notably in dwelling-house architecture. The fine new homes are noble and beautiful and modern. They stand by themselves, too, with green lawns around them whereas the dwellings of a former day are packed together in blocks, and are all of one pattern, with windows all alike, set in an arched framework of twisted stone, a sort of house which was handsome enough when it was rarer. There was another change, the forest park. This was new to me. It is beautiful and very extensive, and has the excellent merit of having been made mainly by nature. There are other parks, and fine ones, notably Tower Grove and the Botanical Gardens, for St. Louis interested herself in such improvements at an earlier day than did the most of our cities. The first time I ever saw St. Louis I could have bought it for six million dollars, and it was the mistake of my life that I did not do it. It was bitter now to look abroad over this domed and steepled metropolis, this solid expanse of bricks and mortar stretching away on every hand into dim, measure-defying distances, and remember that I had allowed that opportunity to go by. Why I should have allowed it to go by seems, of course, foolish and inexplicable today at a first glance. Yet there were reasons, at the time, to justify this course. A Scotchman— Honorable Charles Augustus Murray, writing some forty-five or fifty years ago, said, The streets are narrow, ill-paved, and ill-lighted. Those streets are narrow still, of course. Many of them are ill-paved yet. But the reproach of ill-lighting cannot be repeated now. The Catholic New Church was the only notable building then, and Mr. Murray was confidently called upon to admire it, with its species of grecian porticoes surmounted by a kind of steeple much too diminutive in its proportions and surmounted by sundry ornaments which the unimaginative scotchman found himself quite unable to describe and therefore was grateful when a german tourist helped him out with the exclamation by they look exactly like bedposts St. Louis is well equipped with stately and noble public buildings now, and the little church, which the people used to be so proud of, lost its importance a long time ago. Still, this would not surprise Mr. Murray, if he could come back, for he prophesied the coming greatness of St. Louis with strong confidence. The further we drove in our inspection tour, the more sensibly I realized how the city had grown since I had seen it last. Changes in detail became steadily more apparent, and frequent than at first, too. Changes uniformly evidencing progress, energy, prosperity. But the change of changes was on the levee, this time a departure from the rule. Half a dozen sound-asleep steamboats, where I used to see a solid mile of wide-awake ones. This was melancholy. This was woeful. The absence of the pervading and jocund steamboat man from the billiard saloon was explained. He was absent because he is no more. His occupation is gone, his power has passed away. He is absorbed into the common herd. He grinds at the mill, a shorn Samson and inconspicuous. Half a dozen lifeless steamboats, a mile of empty wharves, A negro fatigued with whiskey, stretched asleep, in a wide and soundless vacancy, where the serried hosts of commerce used to contend. Footnote. Captain Marriott, writing forty-five years ago, says St. Louis has twenty thousand inhabitants. The river abreast of the town is crowded with steamboats lying in two or three tiers. Here was desolation indeed. The old, old sea, as one in tears, comes murmuring with foamy lips, and knocking at the vacant piers, calls for his long-lost multitude of ships. The tow-boat and the railroad had done their work, and done it well and completely. The mighty bridge, stretching along over our heads, had done its share in the slaughter and spoliation. Remains of former steamboatmen told me, with wan satisfaction, that the bridge doesn't pay. Still, it can be no sufficient compensation to a corpse to know that the dynamite that laid him out was not of as good quality as it had been supposed to be. The pavements along the river-front were bad. The sidewalks were rather out of repair. There was a rich abundance of mud. All this was familiar and satisfying, but the ancient armies of drays, and struggling throngs of men, and mountains of freight, were gone, and Sabbath reigned in their stead. The immemorial mile of cheap foul-doggeries remained, but business was dull with them. The multitudes of poison-swilling Irishmen had departed, and in their places were a few scattering handfuls of ragged negroes, some drinking, some drunk, some nodding, others asleep. St. Louis is a great and prosperous and advancing city, but the river-edge of it seems dead past resurrection. Mississippi Steamboating was born about 1812. At the end of thirty years it had grown to mighty proportions, and in less than thirty more it was dead. A strangely short life for so majestic a creature. Of course it is not absolutely dead, neither is a crippled octogenarian who could once jump twenty-two feet on level ground. But, as contrasted with what it was in its prime vigor, Mississippi steamboating may be called dead. It killed the old-fashioned keelboating by reducing the freight trip to New Orleans to less than a week. The railroads have killed the steamboat passenger traffic by doing in two or three days what the steamboats consumed a week in doing. And the towing fleets have killed the through-freight traffic by dragging six or seven steamer-loads of stuff down the river at a time, at an expense so trivial that steamboat competition was out of the question. Freight and passenger-way traffic remains to the steamers. This is in the hands, along the two thousand miles of river between St. Paul and New Orleans, of two or three close corporations well fortified with capital, and by able and thoroughly business-like management and system, these make a sufficiency of money out of what is left of the once prodigious steamboating industry. I suppose that St. Louis and New Orleans have not suffered materially by the change, but alas for the woodyard man." He used to fringe the river all the way. His close-ranked merchandise stretched from the one city to the other, along the banks, and he sold uncountable cords of it every year for cash on the nail. But all the scattering boats that are left burn coal now, and the seldomest spectacle on the Mississippi to-day is a woodpile. Where now is the once woodyard man? End of chapter twenty two.